It's so terrifying to think how fragile trust really is that it only takes one gnarly comment and you can really do a lot of damage. When you have a collision of values, guaranteed, part of that visceral reaction is judgment. So we're in a meeting, you said something, it upset me. On the side, I pulled you aside and said, hey, I just want to let you know what you said to me. It felt like you were invalidating me. And you turned around and in the most gracious way, you looked me in the eye and you said, Because I've been with you for so long, it's really hard to see how the outside world is interpreting you. Um, I totally, right, we use the same language. Yes, reward and punishment, manipulate, because yeah. we know what we mean. Yeah, people are freaking and, the fuck right, out right now. So language matters. And yep. let's talk about that in our relationship where we've had to define the language that we use so that we understand each other in the way that is meant. Because the amount of times, especially early on in our relationship, you'd say one thing, I'd fly off the handle, and you're like, I'm, I, that, that wasn't what I meant. Right. I'm like, yeah, but you use this word. And for me, this word means X, Y, and Z. And so we had to have that communication and understanding how to influence each other with the goal that we have in mind. Um, talk to me about the words that we use and how we develop them. That's and really interesting. We could literally derail on this and do a whole podcast just about this because I think people are, are way too caught up in um, you know what words are acceptable, what you can and can't say. And my whole thing is, A, don't ever be... Um, so sensitive that you can't go, yeah, that word hits me funny or whatever, but I want to stop and really understand this. And I've never understood people that are interested in throwing up a roadblock and saying, I'm no longer going to listen to you because you said X, Y, Z. And I'm not interested in shutting people down. I'm not even interested in trying to prove something to them. I want to understand their position and see if there's something usable in that for me so that I can put it into my own worldview. And it was very easy for us to say, ah, first of all, we're in our 20s. We don't have a better word to manipulate, but I don't mean anything sinister by it. So let's just talk openly about what this is. It's like we have a shared vision. We know what we're trying to accomplish in our life. Um, the only word that I know is manipulate, but hey, it has these really weird connotations and I promise I don't mean any of that. Like, yeah. so are you with me? Do you understand where I'm going? And then my thing is you earn trust with people over time. Like the number of times, and this, this is critical. If you're in a relationship and you weaponize the knowledge that you have about that person against them, you know my every insecurity. I mean the fucking really weird nuanced ones. In 19 years of being together, you've never weaponized anything against me. Not something that I said in the past. You don't do the like bringing something up from a past argument. You don't do any of that shit. And it would be so easy for you because your mind is like a steel trap. It fucking terrifies me. <laughs> and you remember all of that stuff. Like for me, I'm going to fucking forget it anyway. So, but I mean, I know your insecurities well enough. I could certainly weaponize them against you, but I don't want to. Like I don't even have the desire or the inclination. It's like I could end this argument. I could drop her to a bag of sobbing rubble if I just said this one thing. Mm -hmm. I have no interest in doing that. It's like, it's so terrifying to think how fragile trust really is that it only takes one gnarly comment that was aimed to be cruel and you can really do a lot of damage. So we had earned all that trust. So by the time we're talking about stuff like that, it's like we've already been together for a while. There's a lot of trust built up. It's, it's so important to, to treat people kindly and to make them feel better about themselves when they're around you. Yeah, and we're so um, used to each other and each other's language that even when I know you're trying to move me, let's say, and I even say to you like, I see what you're doing there, Billy. Well, 
It's a good strategy. It's working. 100%. And so I'll give you the credit for the strategy because that's the one thing no one ever wants to feel like they're being secretly manipulated Correct. to their advance, to the other person's advantage. That, and that, that is super important. But now the thing that I've heard people say, and I don't remember who said this first, but um, manipulation is moving somebody to your advantage and influence is moving them to their advantage. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Um, I would say that we always moved each other to mutual advantage. It was always about the relationship. But even the language we use with each other, so we have like, for instance, a word that we say that which is important. I say the word important to you maybe two or three times a year, right. you say it back to me. Um, that word for us, we have both come together to define and say this word means that no matter what's happening, you drop what you're doing. And so if you're with the President of the United States and I say, hey, I need you, it's important, it means that you're gonna drop it. But at the same time, I have to um, acknowledge that I can't abuse that word. Right. So those are kind of little tools and tips and tricks that we have done to communicate because we never want the boy that cried wolf, right? Where it's like, let's say I'm feeling down or I'm upset or something's happened. I don't ever want to keep calling on you and then when I really freaking need you and then you're busy and you're like, I just don't have time. So we've really defined that word and what that means to us. Another thing which I want to go deep into is defining roles. This has been massive for us because I feel like, especially my role in the relationship has absolutely changed from the time we were going to get married to where we are now. So talk to me about what you feel or like, actually you were the one that came up with the phrase defining roles. Yeah. So I think that it's really been a fascinating journey going from, I was going to work and be the provider and you were going to take care of the home and the kids um, and then no longer thinking about having kids and then going in and founding a company together. It's been, it's been really incredible. So in the beginning, I, I'll say that we had sort of a blunt force trauma view of it. So I had always thought of the alpha is good and powerful and the beta is sort of weak and subservient. Um, and we saw this documentary about wolves and the beta was bigger and stronger and was just a fucking beast. The alpha was the decision maker. Um, so we had always talked, I was the alpha, you were the beta. With that understanding in mind, you're not weak, you're not subservient at all. It's a partnership and we just have different roles. Now the role is better than the other, they're just different. And once you understand like where someone sort of naturally gravitates to, then it's like you can own, because a big struggle for me in the beginning was I felt for you to find me sexually attractive that I had to be better than you at everything. And that if I wasn't, that you would think I was weak and you wouldn't be attracted to me anymore. And I remember I had this breakthrough that came from this movie I'd watched as a little kid called Daryl. Uh, it was about this android kid and he realizes that his mom feels um, useless because he's perfect. He doesn't need anything. He's AI. So it's like he, he doesn't have needs or anything. So the mom just feels completely um, unnecessary. And that's really devastating for her. So he realizes, oh, I actually, it's, it would be good for me to be imperfect. And so I finally had that realization with you where it's like, wait a second, Daryl had it right all this time and me trying to be better than you at everything is creating all the stress. It makes me look like a dumbass. It just is really stupid. And I thought, who ever would want to be worse at everything than the person that they're with so that the other person is always better at everything? That'd be a fucking miserable existence. Mm -hmm. So I was like, let's really be honest. There are definitely things that you're better at than I am. And the weird thing is there are many traditionally male things. Mm -hmm. So um, logistics, 
um, spatial orientation, systems. It's like all things that I'm just uniquely terrible at, you're really good with. And so it was, it was sort of jarring to be like, wait, these are supposed to be the things that I'm good at. I'm not, you really are gifted. And then once I started saying, you're better at this than I am. And then we began to go, okay, well, here's where Lisa's better, here's where you're better. And I'll hear you out, you hear me out, but basically this is your domain, you make the decision, this is my domain, I'll make the decision. So using business terms, um, you've got the visionary and you've got the integrator. And that I think is, is very powerful to, for people to understand sort of at a high level, like where are you, even if it's just with a family dynamic. You know, where are you, who's good at what, what are your areas of expertise, when are you going to say, okay, this is where you really shine, when are you gonna say this is where I really shine, and you wanna uncover every rock to find places where your partner is amazing. And you wanna celebrate them for that, and you wanna make sure that they know that they're rad there, you wanna make sure that you carve out the space for them to be awesome there, because it's gonna make them feel good. Mm. And it's one of the key ways um, to be in a relationship and make that person feel better about themselves when they're around you is to understand that leadership is fluid and there are gonna be times where I'm leading, there's gonna be times when you're leading. And that if you can follow into being a follower as rapidly as you take the leadership role, it just feels rad. And when you're doing it in a way that makes sense, meaning I'm gonna follow you when you're the right person to lead and you're gonna follow me when I'm the right person to lead, um, it, it gets pretty interesting. Mm. Yeah, I remember very early on us having that discussion. Um, and initially, when we were talking about roles, it was definitely more traditional about, you're gonna go out and work, I'm gonna stay home, I'll cook, I'll clean, I'll take care of the bills. And we had a plan, it was, we were gonna make enough money so that we could um, make our own movies. But we had definitely defined those roles. And over time, you had, gone into entrepreneurship, you were really deep in that, and I was basically a stay-at-home wife and I was not enjoying it. And over time, it started to really weigh on me. Um, and I started to realize that I was changing. So as we started Quest, I was changing. I started to realize, oh my God, I actually love this business side of things. And it really scared me because I felt like there's this part that was I was really enjoying but I didn't want to let you down and I didn't want to go back on my word. I felt like we had made an agreement and this is kind of almost showing that I didn't have a growth mindset back then because right now I'd be like, yeah, well, of course I'm growing. So this is the new me. But back then I didn't realize it and I didn't think of it like that. And so I felt terrified to talk to you, to tell you how much I love this other side of things and how I no longer wanted to be a stay at home wife. I no longer wanted to take care of you. Now that didn't mean I didn't love you but I didn't want to take care of you. I didn't want to cook for you all the time. I didn't want to put your clothes out. And I wasn't sure how you would react to that. Like, am I the person going back on the agreement? Am I, um, you know, not bringing my half to the whole? You are for sure. You're going out every day and you're working hard. And the last thing I wanted was um, for you to think that I was just taking that for granted. But there was a lot of emotion in like that went on for me. And so I had to finally sit you down and talk to you and just be honest. And you basically said, like, who doesn't want their clothes put out for them? Who doesn't want to be mm. cooked for them? It's freaking amazing. It's rad. Why would I not want that? Um, but the only thing that I would want even more is to see you happy. And so if that means that I have to stop having my food, you know, cooked and stuff like that, then so be it, because your happiness is the, the thing that I seek for the most. But you need to give me time to mourn. Mm. And that was so powerful explain what you mean by that and why that was important yeah so as a kid I dreamed I'll be the provider which made me feel very powerful and, and I I don't 
I don't advise anyone to take for granted how powerful that is. Now, typically for a guy, but not always. Um, but for a guy as, as a, you know, looking at the bell curve sort of right in the middle, I would say most guys, that gives them this sense of like pride and purpose and meaning, which do not overlook that. You, you have to process through it at a minimum. You don't have to accept it, but you have to understand it. And so that's always what I wanted. I wanted more than anything to be able to work so that you could stay at home, not realizing that that would not be fulfilling for you. But I didn't even understand fulfillment at the time. So I get that. You're taking care of me. You're really allowing me to build the business. And I suddenly had this real like heartbreak for people who the husband and wife choose, the husband goes and works, the wife doesn't, they end up getting divorced and the wife's like, what the fuck? We had always agreed that I was going to help you build your career and now I'm having to start over. And I had this real sense of like, yo, I could not do what I'm doing. I couldn't work as hard or be as focused if you weren't facilitating my life, which is why I always said you were the CEO of Bill U Enterprises. It's like, you were making sure that I was able to go do all of the things that I wanted to do, kept the house in order. It was like, you would tell me where to be, when are we doing what and all that. And that was incredibly, incredibly valuable. So to me, it was like, hey, this is working. This is amazing. Um, not yet understanding you're not being fulfilled. I see you start to take off all the things that you were doing before. They stop getting done. There's a little sense of like, oh, whoa, like that meaning and purpose that I had before, it's, it's not making sense anymore. And so now I'm losing connection to what I thought was my role and I'm losing, you know, some very amazing perks of being in this relationship and I need a red hot minute to, to get through that. And so I thought that I was like, you know, I'm not being as like, yeah, fuck yeah, like do what you want, do your thing. And so I needed that second to reorient. What did that process look like in your mind to it reorient? It was entirely the phrase. There would be nothing more... Um, nothing would shout, shatter my own values faster than not wanting you to be exactly what you want to be and supporting you every step of the way. So it was like, yes, you feel some kind of way about losing something that you had, both the vision and just, like you said, it's rad to have somebody who's looking after you 24 seven. It's fucking amazing. And so, yes, you're losing that. And yes, it doesn't feel good. And anybody that would ask you to be like, this is awesome. Um, it's just not being realistic. But at the same time, like, at, at the absolute core of my being is I want you to be happy, but like fulfilled happy at like the deepest core part of your soul. And whatever room we have to make in the relationship for that to happen, then we need to do it and we need to do it immediately. And, and that to me, man, that's just like, if you want your relationship to succeed in the long run, you really do have to put the, the bond, the pair as the, the primary importance, right? You can't pretend you don't have your wants and needs, but you also can't pretend that the other person doesn't have theirs and they are of equal importance. Like no matter, because at the time I was the breadwinner for sure. And so there was no like, well, you're the breadwinner. She should take the back seat. It's like, no motherfucker. Like whatever you're doing, half that shit is hers. She has earned it. So whatever you guys have, um, you need to make that space. And I really, 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 really believe and view us as equals. So when we founded Impact Theory, I told the lawyer, make it the ultimate divorce nightmare. Because they were like, uh, one of you should be 51%, the other should be 49. And you even said, you be 51%, like it's not a problem. And I was like, absolutely not, under no circumstances. Make it the ultimate divorce nightmare. We are 50-50 equal. If we deadlock, that's fucking it. And I bet on our ability to navigate that. And I love that. And most people probably watching and listening don't have a business together like ours. But 
the core of what you're saying I think is so important, whether it's in a business or just in your personal life. It needs to be seen as 50-50 all along the way. And you both have to come into agreement about what that looks like because it could have been a moment that we would have broken up. Like if I had turned to you and said, I don't want to be a stay-at-home wife anymore. I want to go into business. Mm. I want to find my own path. And you like disagreed or you said, yeah, but babe, but you had said, I think I probably may have relinquished looking back now. Like if you're like, but babe, like, but we're going to have a family. Like, aren't you going to, that would have been the death of us, right? right? Maybe not immediately, maybe a year, two, three years down the road. But the fact that you were so open to giving me the space to, for me to become who I am and who I'm growing into be like, that's so important. And I do the same with you even though I knew you were always ambitious and you always have big dreams, it's making sure I'm always giving you the space to be able to do that um, and not feel like you're asking me for permission, but, um, but definitely the buy-in. Um, because we've been together for so long and we've even been talking about the stages of our relationship, I really want to talk about um, loving each face for what it is. Mm. Because anybody listening right now, if they're in a relationship, they're at some sort of phase, whether it's the beginning, the middle, they've been for a long time. And this has been one thing that we talk very openly about because I remember being somewhat worried as a woman that like, hey, my age isn't, what is the phrase? The women um, social currency diminishes because- Their sexual as, market value okay. diminishes over time, whereas the guys go up. Because the men are, men are valued, valued for, for resources, resources, access to resources, women are valued for beauty and yeah. So- That's what it is. It's that as a woman, that freaking sucks. The older I get, the less likely I am to be attracted to other, uh, other people to be attracted to me, but yet you, as you get older, you get wiser. Obviously, you've become extremely successful and way, you know, very financially secure. You're getting more appealing to people. Um, so let's talk about how we've had to process that. This was something I will give myself a, a lot of credit for. From the fucking jump, I'm talking from being a teenager, I was like, ooh, that is, that's a gnarly dynamic. And as I got older, I was able to couple on top of that the realization that I don't think monogamy is a default position, but it's like we're sort of in the middle where for sure we can do monogamy and not a big deal, but we also can do the other side where um, you know we can be promiscuous. So it was like, okay, I get that. I also get that if you're gonna be in a relationship with somebody, commitment is a big part of it. And it was important to me to let you know, look, you're young and you're hot right now. I am well aware that you're gonna become a bag of bones and you're gonna be just skin and wrinkles and it's gonna be gnarly and so am I, by the way, and I'm okay with that. Like, I get where we're going. I'm going to enjoy this phase. While you have your looks, holy hell, I'm going to really enjoy them. But I want you to understand, that's not why we're together. So we are together because we're sharing a life and I believe to the core of my existence and anybody that wants to take the Pepsi Challenge on this, I will say, open your soul up to this truth. There is nothing, nothing better in life than shared experience. It's the only thing it can't be, you, you can never rush it. So we have grown up together. And I wanted to literally on our first date, 
like let you know, and it wasn't like I was trying to play a game. It just, the topic came up and I'd already thought a lot about this where it's like, okay, here's the truth of being a man and a woman. You're always going to find somebody else attractive. I'm always going to find somebody else attractive. Commitment is about... You said that on our first date and yeah, I remember 100%. that was the biggest thing. I was like, wow, I love how honest he is. It was, it's so weird to me that people tell each other like, oh my God, if you find that person attractive like, and they flip their shit and they're going crazy because the waitress is good looking and they think their husband I like glanced or whatever. I told my ex that I liked Brad like, Pitt and we, it was like one of the biggest arguments we ever had because yeah. I mentioned his abs. This is crazy. And so I was like, of course you're going to find Brad Pitt attractive with the abs. This is like right around Fight Club. I was like, fuck, I thought he was attractive. <laughs> like if I could reach in the screen and pull those abs on for myself, I would do it in a heartbeat. So I was like, look, I'm going to find other people attractive. Don't be fucking weirded out by that because I'm going to commit to somebody. And regardless of the fact that I find other people attractive, I'm going to be into you. I want to share a life with that person. To me, that's, it's, I didn't have the words back then, but it's anti-fragile. If the only reason that person is with you is because they only have eyes for you, talk about the world's most fragile position. The second you're not in shape or you're, you have the flu and you look like 10 pounds of ass or you get older, it's like, yo, what is this like for me? What if we lost all the money? Would that mean that you'd no longer want to be with me? So it's another fragile position. It's like, I just didn't want to be there. Mm. So it seemed very clear to me there's a difference between attraction and commitment. And so when you're in the beginning of a relationship and they've done the neuroscience on this, you cannot tell the difference between someone who's had a bump of cocaine and someone who's looking at the photo of somebody that they've newly fallen in love with. It's all consuming. It is a rad feeling. It is super fun. I enjoyed every second of it while we were in that phase. But it's like, you don't need to read a lot of books on neuroscience to realize, oh, this is going to change. And because by then I'd become obsessed with reading about the brain, I already knew, hey, this is going to change. The way that we feel about each other, the neurochemistry, it's going to be a different cocktail in a year or two years or whatever. And how many people have to make a joke about the honeymoon phase is over before you go, what is the honeymoon phase? What is beyond that? How does a relationship thrive beyond that? So that was my obsession in my early 20s was really like figuring that out. So anyway, I'd hit you with that early on. You're going to turn into a bag of bones one day. But I need you to know like I will find a way to connect with you physically you know, as we age. And part of that is just my obsession with that shared experience. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up the the brain chemistry in that first time, uh, that first period, because so many people I um, that I've spoken to, friends and stuff, it's always a year or two years down the line where they've just gotten used to each other. That electricity that you first felt, you don't have that anymore. So then it just becomes a live every day as is. But it was me and you, it was always, we, we don't ever want to take each other for granted. And if I can be 100% honest, Right at the beginning, of course, we just can't keep your hands, our hands off each other, right? Mm-hmm. It's like literally all we can think about is, you know, finding some time alone. And I think I may have worried: is he not into me anymore? Mm-hmm. Is he not attracted to me anymore? Have I changed? Oh my god, have I put on weight? Right? Like I absolutely know myself well enough to know that would have been where my mind would have wanted to have gone. But because I've also worked on myself and my own self-esteem. But also you had laid that groundwork of it's never always going to be like this and we have to accept it, but enjoy it for what it is instead of like always mourning what um, the last phase, like really enjoy it. And we have, you know, like you said, we've been together for 19 years and we've gone through many phases now and we've always addressed those phases almost when it's over. I don't know if you've noticed that. I try to be aware of it in real time. I try to really... You know, enjoy it while you have it. Don't take it for granted. Don't get numb to it. And I know it will continue to change. Like I do think about, will there come a day where I don't feel the sense of urgency around my ambition that I feel now? Mm. Almost certainly. I mean, when you look at just the neurochemistry of it, 
sort of inevitable. When you, when you think about hormones changing, like when you were saying, oh, we couldn't keep our hands off each other. First of all, I want people to know you have to keep your sex life alive forever. 100%. Um, so we're super aware of that. And that's something that we actively talk about. For sure. And when we first got together, legitimately it was distracting. It was like I couldn't do anything because all I wanted to do was have sex. And that's not sustainable. Like I actually wouldn't want that in my life now. It's funny how we've come to the same conclusion in different ways. Like for me, because you were always like, I'm never going to be in a sexless marriage. And you pretty much said that from like almost date one. Church, that, you know my biggest fear <laughs> since I was 14 is being in a loveless and marriage. And what's interesting is for me, I had been around women, my mom's friends, every, every adult woman that I'd ever come into contact with when I was younger, you'd hear stories and you'd hear snide comments. Yeah, and so just... you would hear, I'd hear like, people in my family making jokes, but it's like, oh, it's his birthday. I guess I've got to give it up. Or right. it's like, well, if he's lucky. And I would hear this growing up. And so I just adopted that. I was like, oh yeah, if he's lucky, I'm giving you a gift. It's right. me giving it to you. And I remember when on that first date where you're like, I'm never going to be in a sexless marriage. I want to make sure that we're always communicating. I don't know if you said this on the first date, but over time we had said, we need to make sure that we're both on the same page about what is satisfactory and what's mm. satisfying for both of us. Because I want you to feel satisfied um, and I want to be satisfied. But if we're not having that discussion, um, we can never get there. And then also, I really didn't like the way I had been taught to see sex in a couple's relationship. Right. It is not me giving you a gift. It is us both enjoying this moment together, right? Shared experience, like you said. But the mindset that I had been taught about that was that the women have full control. The guys are there to basically be given a gift whenever the woman allows it. Mm. And there was some weird control factor that I didn't like. I didn't like that. I didn't like that um, I could see women using sex as a weapon. That never sat well with me. And so for me and you, it was always like, babe, what is truly satisfying to you? It doesn't mean that I'm always going to do it. I'm not a puppet or, you know, a ragdoll. But like, I need to hear what you really find satisfying because then we can communicate and work through do we actually like if it was 10 times a week okay can we actually sustain 10 times a week right. do i personally want 10 times a week? like but we had to have that conversation without anyone feeling threatened without either of us feeling like we were needy or asking for something that always feels weird as well so yeah, we always used to say um don't make me feel bad for asking and i won't make you feel bad for saying no yeah so it was like that way, hey, if we're on the same page, then great, but I'm not going to be like traumatized or huffy and puffy if you're not in the mood. Um, but don't be surprised if I seek more frequency than you do. Right. And then also understanding another thing going to when I was brought up, I had a lot of women say this, whereas like they would expect flowers. If they didn't give flowers on Valentine's Day or on certain occasions, then they were going to quote unquote punish their partner. Mm. And for us, the one thing also that was very powerful and still is very powerful that we say to each other, don't test each other. Like if 19 years together, like if you don't know by now how much I freaking love you, my, I've obviously clearly failed. But if you do, 
then don't test me. If there's something you want, if there's a way I can make you happy, know that I love you. I just may be blind to it. So with me and you, when I first met you, I was a saver. Growing up, every single penny my mom ever gave me, pound pocket money, I always saved. Um, and when I met you, you um, it wasn't that you were frivolous with your money, but you were in debt and I'd never met any... Uh, from, college, from college, I would like to yeah. point out. But actually being Not from... like I just but being, racked up debt. <laughs> sure, but. but being from England, my college was free. Sure. So I'd never met anybody who had a college debt. Obviously, you were the first American that I dated, so, you know... But it was a shock that you were in debt. Um, and so let's Worried I was going to drag you down? <laughs> well, but, but no, you joke about it. But what if you could have, right? I did for a while, in fairness. So, so let's talk about that. A, where we came together with different types of financial situation. Yeah. Or financial situation. And then when we married, we both had to alter the way we see money and spend money. So... Um, Talk to me about what the key things are that we have to address, first of all, and then how we get through it. So I, I really think that people don't understand the need for rules in their life in general. So um, how is money spent? And, and this is going to get into a, a sort of overarching theme that I imagine will come up over and over in today's conversation when you're talking about when do opposites become problematic. It's all around values. And that's, that's where people disconnect, that's where countries end up conflicting, is they just can't fathom that there is another valid way to approach the world. It's my way or the highway. And around money, man, you got a lot of like hidden values that people mistake for truth. Like when we first met, I was like, oh, so how much money does your dad give you as basically an allowance? And you were mortified that I would ask that because you had a value that was like, you don't talk about money. And I remember thinking, hmm, this is going to be a problem. Mm. So because, and look, I could not have said, oh, we have a collision of values here. That obviously is something that's come over time. But at the time, it really did hit me as, ooh, when someone has a conflicting value with you, they see the world in a way that you think is worse, less than, it really hits you in a visceral way of like, I don't like this. And when you have a visceral reaction, most people do not know what's happening. They, they just go with their neurochemistry. So they have the visceral reaction. And as Viktor Frankl said, between stimulus and response is a gap. And you get to choose how you respond. And like your whole life is in that moment. So if they know, oh yeah, this visceral response that I'm having is because we're having a collision of values. That's precisely what it means. So rather than have the argument about money, this isn't about money, this is about a value system. Mm. So where, what's going on here? So for you, money is not to be discussed. For me, that question wasn't actually about money. It was about open communication. Okay, so that was step one. So we had to process through that. Then you get to the real machinations of money. And I will just say, here's some good advice for anybody, literally no matter what phase of your life you're in. Off the top, pay bills. Then you need to be saving. You wanna save as rapidly as you can to get to the point where you have six months cash on hand, period. I don't care who you are, I don't care what your value system is, this is just reality. And we're recording this in the middle of the COVID-19 crisis. So I'm, can anybody say that that would be a bad fucking idea to have six months living expenses? Not, not cut your life to the quick, the way you live now, you can live without changing anything for six months. If you're unable to save, your lifestyle is out of control and you need to get your lifestyle to a point where you can save up to that. Because you only have two levers, the amount of money you make and the amount of money you spend. That's it, homie. So it's one or the other. Now, 
That is not something that I was good at when we met. That's certainly something that I've gotten more disciplined over time. But even in the beginning of our relationship, when you were like, hey, it's really, um, I come from a saving standpoint, I was like, that actually does make sense. Like, I've always been by myself. I've always kept my expenses very low, but there's no question that is a very smart way to approach it. So anyway, keep your expenses reasonable. Make sure that you save up enough money. Make sure that your bills get paid. And then after that, make sure that you have spending money that each of you control. So the other stuff is joint. The saving is joint. And whether one of you has a job, you both have a job, you save like that core amount. Now, how you break that up, that's up to them. If it's, all right, you make 30% of the money, I make 70% of the money, then you contribute 30% to all the bills and I contribute 70% to all the bills. To me, that makes sense. I've always been like, I'm always trying to get to the point where it's, it's just 50-50, right? So in our case, I was the only one making money, but I was like, yo, this is the life that we have chosen. This is 50-50. I don't think of it as my money that I give to her. It's like, this is 50-50. This is the life that we've structured. Now, Which, was, that was something that was actually difficult for me and we had to talk through because I didn't want to think that I had to come to you for permission and that you were making the money and then you were just giving it to me. Me and you, when you went to work and I was going to stay at home, we spoke through it. We sat down from day one. All right, how much do you think we should save? This is how much I think I sh we should save. And we went back and forth and really laid out everything so that we were all were both on the same page from the get-go. And we approached that with no judgment of each other. Because actually, when I first met you, I actually did judge you a bit because you weren't conscious of saving like I was. Where like for me, it's like if I can see like a cheaper way of doing it, I was like, oh, let's do that. But you weren't very conscious like that. And so I was just like, but he's the one that's is in college there and I'm not. And there was a bit of like judgment there. If you own your own business, when an employee leaves your company, whether on good terms or bad, it can feel, I hate to say it, but it actually can feel personal. Like you and you alone are the one to blame. And it actually may even trigger you to lock down your business, not open yourself up and not actually risk trying anyone else. Like you actually would your heart after a bad breakup and avoid looking for that new partner altogether. Well, let's face it, sometimes we can do that with hires as well. And trust me, guys, I've been there. I get the thought of bringing in a new stranger into your business actually fills your heart with more anxiety than it does love and joy. But when you post your jobs on LinkedIn, you can actually feel the confidence that you will find the right person for the right job fast because LinkedIn isn't actually just another job board. LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion billion with a B professionals, which makes it the best place to hire because guys, it gives you access to professionals that you actually can't find anywhere else. And so LinkedIn does all that while making the process easy and intuitive, which then makes hiring with confidence easy when you have that many quality candidates. And it's so easy, in fact, that 86% of small businesses get qualified candidates within 24 hours. So post your jobs for free at linkedin.com slash Lisa. That's linkedin.com slash Lisa to post your job for utterly free. And of course, terms and conditions always apply. As an entrepreneur, one of the biggest challenges you will face is the negative voice in your head. You know who I'm talking about? That maybe not so small part of you that loudly doubts your abilities to actually pull the things off and make a living from your passion project. But you've got to overcome that negative voice in your head, homie, because I'm telling you, you can do it. 
especially if you use Shopify. Now, Shopify is an all-in-one global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From launching your business to hitting a million dollars, Shopify has got you completely covered. And with all the built-in Magic AI award-winning customer service and the internet's best converting checkout, you have everything you need to shut down the voice of doubt and make all your amazing business dreams a reality. That's exactly why, guys, I love Shopify. So if you want to start growing your business with more customers and sales, shut that negative voice down and prove her wrong that you can do it, Shopify is here for you. So go and sign up for just $1 a month with your trial period at shopify.com slash Lisa, all lowercase. Again, guys, you can go to shopify.com slash Lisa right now to grow your business, no matter where you are and what stage it's in. That's shopify.com slash Lisa. Yeah, I'm not, not, I'm not sure that that's a bad you. thing, uh-huh. to be fair. I, I don't know. So how about this? It is a very predictable thing. And when you have a collision of values, guaranteed, part of that visceral reaction is judgment. It's they're doing it wrong. That the way they do it is wrong. The way that I do it is right. Mm. Now, whether it should be that way or not, we can set aside for a second. I will just say, I don't have a problem with that you judge me when our values collide and I judge you when our values collide. That, that is going to be the discussion. That there is a right way to do this, a right way. Now, let's define right. What are your goals? Mm. One of the ways moves you more effectively towards your goals mm. than the other. So that, that's what I mean by right. I don't mean they're better or more worthy. Okay. I just you. mean that we have a goal. If we're coming at this with opposing values and we have a shared goal, then it's like, well, look at it. Which one of these is actually going to leave it, lead us there? Now, if you haven't come up with shared goals, that's a whole nother thing that you have to talk about. In fact, I think that's where we, you need to start, right? What is the goals? Like with Quest, right? You came in and you're like, baby, if we do this um, and it doesn't succeed, we lose the house. So here I am. You know, we've been married, what was it, like seven years or something at that point, eight years. And you came back and you're like, we just bought our first house and I was so freaking excited. You're like, yeah, if we lose it then, or if the company doesn't succeed, then we lose it. And so, but in our discussions of agreeing on what our goals are as a team was what made me say, yeah, absolutely. But if we hadn't had the discussion about what are our goals together from the get-go? You coming home and saying, oh yeah, I wanna you know, put the house up for, you know, as a risk of a protein bar company and I have no idea, I've never made a protein bar in my life. I think I probably went, are you nuts? But because I was, we were so invested in, we're gonna do this together, we're gonna build something amazing together, we're gonna make movies, that was definitely the goal at the time, but it's like to make movies, we have to take risks. And so we agreed that that was the path we were gonna go on. Yeah, so on goals, there was an episode of Impact Theory I did with a guy named Casper Craven. And he talks about, he and his wife were really at a, at a dark place. And they weren't sure if they were going to stay together. And they thought, why don't we write down shared goals and spend like a year or two years living towards those goals and see um, what that does. And he said, even just the act of sitting down and dreaming together, he said was was so bonding. And he said, we laid out like all of our dreams. You know, here are my seven things I want to do with my life. Here are her seven things she wants to do with her life. He said, there was only one that overlapped. And he said, they just clung to that one thing. Mm. All right, cool. We both share this dream and now let's go for it. They wrote it down, which is so powerful and hung it up on the wall and then just said, everything serves that goal. Mm. 
and I, that's so clarifying one for you and then unifying for a couple. That's Super so powerful. So just going back to money. So assuming that you have the shared goal of what you're trying to accomplish, then the collisions of values will all revolve around which one is going to move us towards the goal more effectively. And if you can talk like that and not be overly invested, and this is where identity, man, is rough. I've heard it said, I forget by who, but when you touch on someone's identity and say, that's a problem, or you're not as good at that, good at that as you think, ooh, that's when you light people up and they get super defensive. So getting past some of that to be like, oh, I really believe in the goal. The goal I believe in. Anything else that we get into, ah, I'm open, right? So, um, but that's hard. It's not easy for people. Like your identity has all these tendrils. It's all these weird things, right? Like you were saying, oh, I'm a saver, but I have a value that's that saving is good. So when you say I'm not a saver, I'm like, oh, I'm not something that's good. Ah, like it gets hard for people to own that there are parts of their personality that don't serve their goals as much as they would like, but they're, they are still real. All right, want to move on to the next subject. You want to talk about kids? Sure. All right. So um, me and you always thought we were going to have kids when we got married. I actually wanted four. I think you wanted two. Um, but from the get-go, I mean, people may not know this about you, but right up until we, we thought we were going to have kids, you were reading children's books, parenting books. That's what you were asking for 100%. Christmas. My mum bought you with utter excitement. She thought she was going to be a grandmother. So she bought you every book under the sun. Um, and we discussed it endlessly about how we were going to bring up our kids. And we did it before we had children. And that was a big... We did it before we even started trying to have children. Right. For those people at home, though, we never did stop right. trying. We not yeah, trying. But I just right. wanted to like, make that clear. Um, but right, that's exactly it. Before we even started to think about actually starting it, we discussed everything. How we were going to discipline our kids. What religion were we going to br bring them up in? What was important to me growing up? What was important to you? And there were things that we actually had collisions on. Um, the one that comes to my mind is um, was uh, discipline and spanking. Mm. Yeah. So if you want to talk about that and then... Well, I mean, I will speak for myself. I was so rebellious and I've always had such a problem with authority that I would just push and push and push until I got spanked and then I would stop. Now, I, when I say it did not traumatize me, I don't have any bad feelings. I always knew my mom loved me. Um, and I remember... At 13 years old, my friend Justin Angove comes into school one day and he was all excited. He's like, my mom tried to slap me and I blocked her and she burst into tears. She's never going to slap me again. And I was like, that's genius. I've never thought like I'm bigger than my mom now. I've never thought to, to block her. This is so <laughs> smart. The next time she tries to slap me, I'm going to karate kid the shit out of her and I'm going to block it. And that's just going to end it. And she's going to know who's boss from then on. And so... It couldn't have been very long. The next day, probably, I remember standing at the front door. I'm pushing and pushing and pushing. I don't remember what she wanted me to do. And escalate. Ah, and then finally she goes to slap me. Boom, I block it. And you can't imagine how, feel, how good I feel. I am elated. And she goes to slap me with the other hand. Boom, and I block that too. And I was like, oh, like she knows what is up now. And then pow, she got me with the third one. And in the moment, like right then and there, I was like, Mad respect. I see you, Bill. You like nothing but my mom is not going to back down. My mom 
loves me, wants good things for me. She's going to keep my ass on the straight and narrow. Just that fucking simple. I never got in trouble. I didn't drink, didn't do drugs. Like I was just in line. I fucking am so grateful for that. Like I'm so grateful for my mom and the way that she raised me. My mom didn't take shit, but she loved me to fucking death and she wasn't abusive. And so to me, there is such a clear line between keeping someone in line and being abusive. Like they, they are, they are a spectrum for sure. And I get it. Some people can spill. My mom never did always like, she never hurt me or injured me or anything like that, but she got my attention. And yeah. So anyway, that to me was like, yo, if a kid is going berserk, I'm going to give him a swat on the ass and to that's, bring him into line. And for me, though, I was so fearful. So my dad did spank. Not much. I think maybe he spanked me once. I remember him slapping my hand once as well. And it broke my heart. Like, broke my heart. And I think it I, would have been the same for and, my sister. And I had a certain amount of fear. Um, and I know my dad loved me. and so, But I was definitely like, oh, don't get him mad. And he only did but it once. But that's the he, point. Right. But... I had the fear. And so my thinking is, I don't want to put fear in my kids, um, in their conscience, like that, in their conscience. Like that's just, I don't want to do that to them. But you have such a wonderful story that you come from the other perspective. So even like we had spoken about, well, do we spank them? Do we not? All I right. said to you that I would have probably slapped their hands, but um, I, I couldn't do anything else. But if you felt strongly that you felt like if someone was out of control or our child was out of control and you needed or wanted to spank them, I would have, I would absolutely, like putting myself in that situation right now, I would absolutely respect you because if that's something that you feel like you need to do, but I would say to you, hey, we have to be careful on what type of child you spank and how they react to it because I'm, like you're a rare breed in my mind. Like, I don't know how many other people are like, oh my, I respect my parents for spanking me, right? It's, it's unusual. So I would have worried that if you ended up spanking a ch our child who maybe was super soft, and you even said, right, your sister would have felt the same way. So, um, so as you can see, guys, at home, like this is something that we talk about and we're going to go back and forward with, but it's important to discuss because if when we have a kid, all of a sudden you spank and we haven't spoken about it, like would I have been horrified? Would I have had, like lashed out at you and now that child sees the fact that me and you don't agree on the punishment? Like talk about mixed messages to children. And that's one yeah. thing that we spoke about as well is if we ever disagree, never do it in front of the kids because we always have to be united. Um, but that the spanking thing was just one thing and then also the religious thing um we come from different perspectives not necessarily perspectives but different belief systems and i was brought up greek orthodox and that was really important to me that our kids were christened greek orthodox and that um they learn greek and so you seem to be okay with you know um coming on board with the the culture um, but what would you say, let's say there's certain, like I know many people who especially like, um, I have a lot of Jewish friends and it's like, no, I just won't marry someone out of my religion because mm. it is important. It is important to me that my children are the same. So it's not even about their partner. They just won't look for someone out of their religion because it's important that their kids are the same. Yeah, but for my, me, my thing with kids is. I, I'm not going to be dogmatic. They need to think like me, but I'm going to always be honest with them about what I think. My thing was you were always super reasonable. You weren't dogmatic. You weren't, you know, um, 
like ultra fundamental or anything. So there was no like you saw beauty in a lot of it and you saw beauty in the ritual and things. And I was like, yeah, I respect all that. Like getting the kids christened and stuff. Sure. If that makes you happy, like I don't think it has any sort of ill effects. Um, you never asked me to lie. So it's like, yeah, you be honest. You do you. I'm not going to make fun of you or what you believed at the time. Like, hey, this is what your mom thinks this is what I think. And you know, follow your thing. I don't really care. It's like, I want people to think for themselves. I want them to make their own decisions. I want them to, to chase beauty and poetry where they see it. And if they see beauty and poetry in the Bible, then go for it. But you said a really big key thing there is we respected each other. So you actually, you got christened. I don't know how many people know this, but being Greek Orthodox, I'd always dreamt about getting married in a Greek church and having that very traditional wedding. Um, and I remember when you proposed and we were talking about it, and I was like, hey, look, it's very important to me to get married in a Greek church. Um, and you're like, oh, I've, I've never even dreamt about my wedding day. So of course, then when it came to getting christened, you said, look, I will do what I needs to be done for me to get christened. You went, like, I was going to say religiously, pun intended, to sit with a bishop once a week, twice a week, for weeks on end, to have classes in order to pass and have him accept um, you into the religion, and then he christened you. And you went in and you were like, look, if I'm going to do it, there was no resentment in you. You were like, you realized this was a gift. I think I was thanking you profusely, which is important versus expectation. I didn't mm. expect you to do it. And then you were just, you were so into it and you're like, yeah, I'm going to do it. Like, if I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it. And you went in with a stack of books and you were asking questions about religion and things like that. But at the end, I remember you saying to me, I hope, you know, this doesn't mean that I believe in God now. And please don't ever ask me to convert emotionally. Like I will do it for you so that we can get married in a church, but it's very different. And if your dad ever asks me, because that was a big thing, I was like, oh my mm. God, I don't want my dad to know you don't believe in God. And you were just like, look, if your dad ever asks me, I'm not going to lie to him. And I remember you saying that. I was like, oh my God, oh God. What if I hope he never asks. I hope he never <laughs> asks I was. But in that moment, I had to stop and say, Lisa, this isn't just about you. He's willing to meet you in the middle. Like he's willing to do all this stuff because I've said it's important. Like what he's doing for you is beautiful. And the fact that I can't now meet you in the middle and say, yes, you still should be who you truly are. And for me to ask you to be anything else, I don't think would have been fair as a partner to do to you. You weren't asking me to not have a religious wedding. So why on earth would I ask you to convert your beliefs? 100%. So. All right, now I want to move on to habits because I think especially right now, if people are stuck at home, P um, difference in habits, I think, can actually start to probably... Ooh, yeah, this is a particularly weird time for habits and routines. It's a good point. Yeah. I hadn't even thought about that. We're so, like, we have such a rhythm. But it's funny. If we worked out at the same time, it could be a problem. Because that's, like, your safe space. Like, you, even I'm, like, I'm in Lisa's gym. <laughs> like, oh, God, I got to hurry. It's so interesting. And the funny thing part of me is like, he's in the gym. <laughs> he's using my weights. <laughs> we share everything 50-50 except the gym. Don't fuck with my gym. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that is a glimpse into our marriage, very much so. <laughs> um, I do think, so again, rules, communication. People have got to talk about how do we use this space, right? 
So it is possible in the next 12 months that you spend five, six months on quarantine? Like, who knows, right? I am not an expert. I have no idea what will actually happen, but that is a very real possibility. Looking at the mutation rate of the virus and all that stuff, it's fucking real. So getting to understand how people effectively um, get their needs met in the space, I want to use this, like, for instance, the gym would be a perfect example for us. It is very important to you, the gym. Now, the gym is using our language. The gym is meaningful to me. It isn't important like it is for you. If I missed a week, whatever, I don't fucking care. But like you really like make it one of your highest priorities to make sure that you get your time in the gym. So it's like if we were colliding and I was like messing up your routine because you use a lot of things all at the same time, it's like I would be very respectful of that and say, cool, I get it. She needs her space. Then on my writing days, I need my space. I can't have people fucking interrupting me. It drives me crazy. And so if we were in a small house where it was like during my writing time, you had to give me extra consideration, I would lavish you with praise for doing so because I want to make sure I reward that behavior. But I would also give you the gift that you want, which is I would, hey, when are you not in the gym? And then I'll go make my gym time around that if I have to work out you know, midday or really early, which... Thankfully for us, we're on slightly different sleep schedules. So for me, it's just I wake up and and I'll go straight to the gym. And usually I'm done before you even wake up. Um, But setting those rhythms, talking through this stuff, giving gifts, giving gifts, like want the other person to be happy. And then when the other person is doing something nice for you, lavish them with praise for that. And don't lavish them with praise because if this goes on for months, don't lavish them with praise in week one. And then by month three, it's just an expectation, mm-hmm. right? Like you like it when I boil your water, which I haven't done in oh, your house. Oh, I was so, going to say something to you today. And I was like, please do. So for pe- I'm just totally out of the rhythm. I don't even go back there. So for the longest time you were boiling the kettle and it got to a point where I forgot to thank you because I was just, and I remember being like, oh man, he didn't boil the kettle yeah, today. You noticed if I didn't do it, right? but you didn't notice if I did do it. And I remember it. we, you said, and you're like, look, it's turning into an expectation. And I was like, oh my God, you're so right. I can't believe since we've moved so it's been what maybe three months now you haven't boiled the kettle and then this morning I was like I really want to tell him to boil the kettle for me but I was like I don't know how to approach it because it's kind of freaking cheeky for me to ask you I'm so glad this this, came up I'm so glad this came up because here's the one now I'm just going to relate to you and people can watch and see how we talk there is no malice I'm not being passive aggressive I legitimately need to see it to remember and so I and then once I get in the habit then we're good And when we were living here, I would walk by it every morning and I would see it on the way in and the way out. Mm -hmm. And so it became this thing where, and then I would see it before the gym and after the gym. So I would see it like eight times in the morning and I only had to remember one time because I would see it eight times before you woke up. Now, because it's in like a separate part, I don't see it. So I never just accidentally walk by it ever. So... Being reminded, because I want to give you a yeah, gift. Yeah, how would I, I want say to that lift to you, up. you? Hey, baby, I want to help you get back in the habit because you've told me that you want to do this for me and it is a meaningful thing. Mm. So, and look, the way that you say it will, of course, acknowledge that it is cheeky to ask and because 
there is, it's weird and nuanced and complicated. So saying like, hey, this is so cheeky, but you did say, and so like, I would love it if you, you know, did it. And then know that like, I might then remember once and then forget again for a week. And I want the reminders. And then once I get back in the rhythm, you, I'll get back in the rhythm because hopefully you'll have been rewarding me for doing it. And then don't let it become an expectation because then it just sucks. It's just a chore. And that's exactly the words I had in my mind. I was like, okay, I want to say how meaningful it was to me. But I do recognize it is still cheeky for me to ask you to boil the kettle. But I, I'm actually really glad this happened because people can hear at home. Like, I, we really do talk like this. And most of the time, it's we try to at least, or definitely I try to, have these conversations when we're emotionally sober, you know, because it's like, I can say to you, babe, I know it's cheeky, like what's the, actually the best way for me to ask you mm. this? And you just tell me, well, if you ask me like this, this is actually what will help. And if you ask me like this, and so we give each other the gifts in, because we trust each other and we're not trying to manipulate each other. Um, so it's so important that we, that we have these open conversations. So let's go back to habits. Um, so people are at home, talk, so let's say they start talking about the communicating, what's important and then what's not. Um, giving the time, I love that. One thing is you were talking that we've spoken about that we did for a while um, when I was finding it hard to let you know when I was on, I was working and when I was off the clock because mm. we were working and living in this house at the same time, the studio. And I remember, in fact, I think it was in a relationship theory episode, I had the idea that it should be like the Brazilian um, restaurants. So, you know, in the Brazilian mm. restaurants, you have those like, bring more meat, don't bring me little coop, like chip. We had done, I did the lamp. And mm. in, our, in the bedroom, I would switch on the lamp when I was, um, it was nighttime for me, when I was yeah. switching off work. So what you would do is you would come into the bedroom, maybe say something about work, see the lamp was on and be like, love you. And then you would walk back out. Mm. So it was an indicator to the other person without having to say the words. So as you were talking, if you're confined in this space, maybe there's certain things like that, where it's like, if you yeah, don't yeah. want to be bothered, have the discussion, right? Because even in the words, don't want to be bothered, some people may get their back up by it. So have the things like, I need space, I need time to focus, like using these types of words, mm. I think will help that communication. And then having that sort of signal that says, cool, when I do X, it means I'm in work mode. When I do Z, it means I'm in let's hang out mode, let's talk about other things. Right. Um, so that was actually one thing that came to mind. Um, but what about things like habits like, and fad, let us talk about this, um, leaving clothes on the floor and someone's messy, the other person's neat. So one thing is like, I don't want you to feel like I'm just bossing you about, pick up your clothes. It's like, because I know when we first met, you never made the bed. I always made the bed. Right. Which and, is madness. But we, it's right. And lunacy. the fact that you think is madness, I think is madness that you don't make the bed. Right. Like madness that you don't make the bed. How can you not make the bed? But we spoke about it and you explained. And originally I definitely came to it from a judgment perspective. Cause I'm like, oh. God, I can't believe Goals, it. which moves you towards your goal or right. not. Like, I'm, I'm all for it. And this is really what people need to be thinking about when it comes to this. So um, this is a perfect example because I think it's real. I think a lot of people are going to struggle with it in terms of clean up, don't clean up. So if you're in a relationship where one person wants things clean and one doesn't, I promise you, you are at a collision of values. One person thinks it is self-evident that you should be picking up and keeping things tidy. And one person thinks it's self-evident that to constantly be cleaning and tidying when something is just going to get re-messy the next day doesn't make any sense. So one is 
there's two types of collisions of values. Ones that can be worked through and you can come to a compromise or a new agreement and one where absolutely not, um, I'm not gonna change. I understand your position. I understand it perfectly. Steel man, I got it. I can explain it better than you. And I still think it doesn't make any sense and vice versa. So let's deal with that where there, there's just no compromise to be had, which for us is being tidy. There, we, we have talked about it six ways a Sunday, but the reality is when things get messy, it gives you anxiety. So no matter what words, no matter how much logic I give you, unless you were willing to do the work to unwind that neurological pattern, it's never gonna change. So now is where it gets into, you're going to have to create rules around how things are handled. So is it that, like for instance, don't fuck with my part of the closet, right? I have a side, you have a side. You can do whatever you want in your closet. You can fucking clean it with a toothbrush if you want. I have my side of the closet. Yo, you don't have to look at it. Like it's going to be the way I want it to be. And that's that. I'm not asking you to deal with it. I'm not asking you to clean it. I'm not asking you to wash my clothes, nothing. But I am not, this is, I understand your argument, but I'm not willing to do inefficient shit. It doesn't make fucking sense to me. So I'm gonna keep mine the way that I wanna keep it. You're gonna keep yours the way you wanna keep it. And all public areas will default to a DMZ, which means I can't be messy in it. Um, by In this example, clean is, is an absence. So the default in there would just be lack of mess. You take care of yours, I take care of mine. Um, if you want the bed made and I don't, by all means, make the bed. And I won't touch it during the day. I won't mess it up, but don't ever ask me to make it. So basically it's don't And then cast... do, do get the bed ready after, because we sleep with diff, uh, separate blankets. Yeah, and so that's, that's another thing, because you're like, if you make the bed, then you have to make sure that when I climb back into it, I don't have to fuss with the blankets. Yeah, meaning when you make the bed, you, you will oftentimes actually remove my blankets from the bed, sometimes remove them from the room, and it's like, hey, if you're going to do that, I absolutely accept it. Don't make me hunt for my own. Like that, that's really like hashtag real talk. That's so disrespectful in my world that it's like, this is gonna be a problem every single day. If I have to go look for myself, I feel so disrespected. It's like, but that's you interesting you. that like the <laughs> you do me no 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 me. you you do you I'm not gonna <laughs> yeah, stop yeah. you but don't make it my problem right don't don't force your value system on me like we we have to to say we can't agree on this I'm I don't need you to adopt my values mm -hmm. but don't make mm -hmm. your values my problem either and it like even just in the tone you're using like disrespectful that's a big fucking word a hundred percent used intentional correct and i know that you use your language very specifically and i just want to point out though that from my perspective i never would have thought you'd be disrespected because i wouldn't have perceived it like that myself so like i don't think of you putting your socks on the floor as being disrespectful i just think you're messy but me not but me moving your blankets from the bed wouldn't have occurred to me that you would interpret it to be disrespectful. And so if we didn't communicate and you didn't tell me that, I would have been like, what the fuck is wrong with him? Like, why is he grumpy? Like, right, and we would have battled and we wouldn't have said the words and I wouldn't have quite understood because I don't see it like you do. But because you were very honest and open, instead of me trying to persuade you, like, no, 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 it's not disrespectful. I'm just like, cool, that's how he feels. I'm going to respect that you feel disrespected by that, right? And so if I can respect it, then I can go, cool, how do I choose to act? Because then it's in my control. I can choose to disrespect you, 
but know that I'm disrespecting you. Or I can choose to not make the bed or, you know, whatever. But in that communication has allowed both of us to understand where the other person's coming from. And then going back to what you said, then we created rules of engagement around it. So it's like, cool, if I make the bed, I have to make sure it's unmade before you get in. That's an that's a agreement that we've made. And so we don't argue about the freaking bed anymore. It really comes down to, like this one, where they feel the other person is doing it wrong, inferior, and making it their problem. So they have to deal with doing things a worse way. And they've never articulated it to themselves or to the other person. So it's just emotional reactions. And so... You don't understand why I'm getting upset that the, the bed is made and it's lovely and beautiful. And you're like, how, how am I in trouble right now? Mm. This bed looks gorgeous. He, he gets to walk in and see this beautiful room. And I bet it makes him feel wonderful because that's how it makes you feel. And so you, you're just projecting it onto the other person without thinking through. When I walk in and I see a made bed, I either don't notice it or I think, oh, this is a pain in the ass. I have to like re move all the blankets and stuff before we can get into bed. I don't look at it and go, ooh, that's beautiful. Mm. So all the things you think I'm getting out of it, I'm not getting out of it. But until each person like really stops and defines it for themselves and then articulates it to the other person, it just becomes like that, the nagging and the bickering and the fighting and no one ever stops to ask, what are we actually fighting about? Yeah, oh, actually also it makes me, as you were talking, making the bed because this is how I was brought up. I perceived it as being a good wife. And so you walking in. Interesting. Right? Think about like the typical duties um, put upon, you know, stay-at-home women. It's make it cleaning, it's cooking, it's providing, it's being there for people. If I didn't know that you felt disrespected by me making the bed. No, no, I, no, I don't feel disrespected by you making the bed. Sorry, but I feel disrespected by you hiding my fucking okay, blankets. But hiding your be blankets. Very okay. clear. Um, I would have felt though like, but like I'm doing something lovely. I'm like bringing my my half to the hole, and you coming in and being annoyed by it would have, yeah, really upset me. Yeah, from your perspective, I completely see and understand. That's why people have to talk through it. Even the um, the little nuanced where you said you found it disrespectful that I make the bed. And it's like, no, that's ah. not what I feel. And so this is where mm -hmm. like, man, even sometimes when you've talked about it or you think you've talked about it, the words don't mean the same thing or a slightly different meaning was taken away, but it can really change the intent. Um, because here's, if I were you, you ready for what I would do? I would for make- For the record, I don't make the bed anymore. But if you were going to. Okay. Make my side. My two blankets, maybe fold them in half so all I have to do is unfold them. Fold them in half and then just put your blanket on top. Now you won't like that because it'll look lumpy. <laughs> but for me, it's like, cool, then you just fold yours open, fold mine open and now we're in bed. Super easy, nice and simple. Can I say but, something? Please. You are with me because <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love that. That just so touched my heart. Yes, that, that is definitely something that would like bother you. I feel like you know me so well. You feel seen in the I avatar do. way. Yeah. I do seen <laughs> so we're in a meeting you said something it upset me on the side i pulled you aside and said hey i just want to let you know what you said to me it felt like you were invalidating me and you turned around and in the most um 
gracious way, you looked me in the eye and you, you said, but babe, I thought no one can invalidate you. That's on you. And there's so many little nuances within that of how you and when you um, or if you should allow your partner to validate you or not. And is there a fine line? And at what point can you rely on someone to make you feel good? Or is that all on you? And so that's where I want to start. Talk to me about when we first got together, because people that are watching may also be single. So I like to kind of set it up for when you're first getting into a relationship, how you can handle your insecurities um, or your partner's insecurities. And then further, we'll keep going in once you get deep into the relationship and make it long lasting. That's a big topic. Uh, the reality is that especially when you're single and you're just starting out, you really do have to have the growth mindset. And what set me free to deal with my insecurities was recognizing that I could get better. And the only thing that I think makes people really run from their insecurities is when it's something they don't think they can do anything about, which is why looks is far more terrifying than a lot of other things, especially for women. So having a growth mindset allowed me to address the things that I felt that I could change, which are, I won't say the sum total of my insecurities, but are the certainly the vast majority of my insecurities. And that is very freeing. And I would say that's where most people need to start. There's so much low hanging fruit when it comes to insecurities around things that you can change um, that I think people really need to start there. And you know, going back to what you were saying about you know, so much nuance. And when you've been in a relationship, as long as we have, we've gotten to the point where we can say things that maybe you wouldn't otherwise be able to say because you have so much history of investment into the other person, of wanting to lift them up, of them knowing you want good things for them, um, that you can say something like that. But one of the things that just undergirds all this is I know you have a growth mindset. Um, and so when you say something like that and you know the other person is isn't going to break under the weight of that comment. They're, they're going to be reminded of a shared value system. Um, and, and we probably will have to talk about that. Like when you really think about what makes a couple powerful, it's the way that you shape each other's value system. And if you do it in a way that is uplifting, um, you get inoculated from a lot of the suffering that comes with insecurity. Um that's great, but I'm actually going to push you a bit because when we Please. first got together, we didn't have growth mindsets. And so I'm assuming people are in a situation right now where they have insecurities, it is affecting their relationship. So how do they identify some insecurity they have to work on? Um, and then how do they communicate with their partner? Now, when me and you first got together, neither of us has growth mindsets. And I seem to remember you, us playing pool one day. We first got together, we were still dating. It was your first time in England. We were playing pool together. It was competition. I wanted to win, you wanted to win. I thought it would be super sexy for me to come and whisper something in your ear. Right. Take it from there. And it was super sexy. That's the most heartbreaking part of the story is at the time, I believed that if I wasn't better than you at everything, that you wouldn't find me attractive. And that meant that I needed to beat you in pool. Otherwise, you were gonna be like, haha, like, you know, this loser, I can beat him in pool. And I mean, it sounds so dumb now, but at the time, it really felt like if I didn't win, that that would reflect poorly on me in your eyes. I wasn't even worried about myself. Like at the time, I wasn't very competitive, I didn't really care. Um, but I was very worried about what 
that would make you think about me. But that is an insecurity though, right? A hundred percent. Oh, no, no, no. Th- that's not me saying this isn't an insecurity. One thousand percent. Not only was it dumb, but it was, it made me insecure. Now, this is, if that really was my first trip to England, at that point, I haven't even told you that I love you yet. Mm-hmm. So this is very early in the relationship. So much instability. Um, so anyway, we're playing pool. You whisper this thing in my ear. It's incredibly sexy, but it makes me miss on the game-winning shot, and then you end up winning. And I got mad about it. And looking back now, of course, it's like I had finally had the realization once I had adopted a growth mindset, one, that if I wanted to get better at something that I could, so if I wanted to beat you at pool every time, I only needed to practice pool. Um, And this gets into sort of complications that go beyond just pure insecurity. But the realization that I had on this particular issue was who in the world would want to be in a relationship with somebody who's better than them at everything. And that was very freeing to realize that, you know, in some ways our story is a story about intertwining. But in that moment, it it was realizing that you were your own person with your own hopes and dreams, your own desire to be great at certain things, to bring equal weight and prowess to the relationship. But I couldn't see that at the time, right? I mean, just it, it is literally just being young and dumb. Mm. But that one in particular, it's very important that people understand that the real goal is to be desirous of a partner who is equally as powerful as you are. And to not want to be the more dominant, the better, the smarter, the wiser, the whatever, right, that stack of values is, is to say, the fun thing here is that I'm with somebody who, in different things, is better than me, and in other things, I'm better than them, and we've come together and said, how much ass can we kick by partnering up? Yeah. Talk to me, though, about how you started to... um change your identity to not want to have to be better than everything everyone so because i think there's two elements here there's how you deal with your own insecurities in a relationship and then how you deal with your partner's insecurities in a relationship so i want to start with your own insecurities and then we can talk about how you handled me being insecure in a relationship and then i can kind of give my perspective on that Ooh, that gets complicated Uh, okay, so the way that I dealt with my own secure insecurities was almost entirely two things. One, a growth mindset. So I'm not good at this yet, but I can get good at this. So I, you know, the famous quote, I forget who said it, but um, there's two things you should never worry about. The things you can't change and the things you can. Because if you can't change it, then what's the point worrying about it? And if you can change it, then just go do something about it. And that was... Um, hugely liberating because you get to the point where you go, I know I could get better at this thing, but I'm actually not interested. It will take too much time and energy. Okay, cool. Then just don't value yourself for that thing. And that's a key part of this. What do you value yourself for? We all need to feel good about ourselves. You're going to feel good about yourself based on what you choose to value. Most people confuse what they have chosen to value Mm -hmm. with what is objectively valuable. Mm. So they think, oh, I value this thing because in the real world, it just simply is valuable. Mm -hmm. But that's not necessarily true. Um, So money is a great example. So people often value money because they think that people with money are, um, they're better in some way. And so they confuse money with worth. So that becomes the first thing that people have to untangle is, oh, I've chosen to value this thing. 
And because I am either good or not good at this thing, I feel better or worse about myself. That's the first thing you have to get control of. And that's, sorry, just to add to, because so freaking powerful, you're absolutely right. And I think women, speaking for myself, did that with beauty, and you said it earlier. And because I was teased for my looks, I obviously felt very um, unworthy. Um, and for women, young you just freaking get older. Like there's no going younger. So if youth is valued every single day, you're getting by definition, at least how I used to think, less valuable, which is why I think it's so freaking powerful that you said you have to figure out about how where you put your value and your worth compared to what is traditional. Um, so I wanna talk about what you call sexual market value. And this is very controversial, but here's the thing. If people can open up and what you're about to say can be actually beautiful if you hear, um, the takeaway message. So I have an obsession, which you know very much, which is the physics of being human. So going to beauty, I, I, on this, I'm just completely unafraid. Like if people get upset, like that makes me sad because they are rejecting something that isn't, is just true about the human experience. And if you look at humans on an evolutionary time scale, nature had to incentivize certain behaviors. Nature had to incentivize sex so that you would procreate and that you'd have children. So that is a strategy that mother nature used. Now, mother nature needs to incentivize certain behaviors. So mother nature says, hey, don't just mate. Mate with somebody who's likely to be reproductively successful. So that happens to be tied to youth. The older women get, they move into what's actually a, a really interesting part of human evolution, which we'll call the grandmother phase. So you don't die when you're no longer reproductively available. How interesting is that? The fact that wisdom and caretaking, all of those things, like they end up being so valuable that even post-menopause, there's such a powerful role to be had that you can live for decades, sometimes longer after menopause and before. I mean, that, that to me is really fascinating. But nature says, but sexually, I don't focus on the grandmas, okay? They have a totally different role. I want you to focus on the ones that are most likely to get pregnant. Now, this is where we can go so deep down this rabbit hole. We are the only species, women are the only half of a species that obfuscates, hides your, um, when you're reproductive. So now it's like, okay, well, if I don't know when you're ovulating, then I need to just have signals. Youth is one of them. Um, youth is probably the biggest one, but hip to waist ratio is another one. Bus size is another one. All things that indicate that not only are you of like prime reproductive age, but that you have the resources, the just available amount of fat on your body to sustain having a child. So now it's like nature's going, yo, I've given you all these signals, dear men, look for those and go after those signals. So if nature has given that signal, you can imagine that she deeply embeds then my like impulse towards those signals, which is again, so interesting, but where people get into trouble. And one of the things that we talked about on our first date or early date, forget when it was exactly, but it was like, look, I'm always gonna find other women attractive. Don't freak out about it. You're always gonna find other men attractive. I'm not gonna freak out about that. That is just nature at work. Um, so when you begin to contextualize it like that and you understand that push, and one thing that I find really, really interesting, if you ask women 
what age group of man they find attractive. It's always a four-year range around their age. So when you're 20, you find guys from 18 to 22 attractive. When you're 40, you find guys from 38 to 42 attractive. It just slides. So whatever age you are, like that's your range. Guys, no matter what their age, 13, 73, they find women who are 22 attractive. It never changes. So that is like, that's the physics of being human. That is the nature of it. Now, you can think about it in terms of the male gaze. And I find Heather Hyings um, talks about the male gaze and how every woman has this moment of awakening where you realize, guys are looking at me differently. And there's a coming into your power. And females have that power. Um, Douglas Murray talks about how can, can we just admit that a woman in her sexual peak who's at the peak attractiveness can get a grown man to do the most absurd things ever, throw away their entire careers, money, everything, because nature has said, hey, this is your ability to gain immortality by having children. And some guys, obviously not all guys, the vast majority of everybody on both sides of the fence can keep themselves on a nice straight narrow path and never act the fool either way. But when you understand that outliers, that that's going to be something where people really can wield tremendous power. But women who um, never sort of find peace in that and never understand how to leverage that to feel good about themselves, to enjoy that phase. It's a phase and it will go away. And one day you are going to be in the grandmother phase and then enjoy the grandmother phase for what it has to offer. But I've always said in life, you go through phases, enjoy every phase for what it has to offer. And there is a point at which women have this moment of beauty and I think that they should enjoy it. I'm not saying flaunted. I'm not saying you have to go out and advertise your sexuality. I'm not saying any of that. But I'm saying I heard a very interesting quote that men enjoy looking at something that turns them on and women enjoy being the turn on. Mm. Now, if that is part of the physics of being human, which would make sense because men are meant to desire that woman who is able to bear offspring, so that's what men are drawn to. And then women would find the excitement in being the thing that they desire because that's precisely what's going to bring you together. Now, it's a, it's a totally different strategy for women in terms of what they need from a good genes perspective and all that. It's not necessarily just being good looking. But that's interesting though because while on one side, so everything you just broken down is amazing and why I love that is exactly why I freaking am obsessed with the book, The Female Brain understanding how my brain works, understanding evolution, understanding humans, and just accepting that this is how we're built allows me then to say, doesn't mean that I have to accept then people acting, right? If you were just to go, oh, well, look, I'm, I'm wired to be with young, hot women, so bye. Like, I wouldn't accept that. But at least understanding the basis of where everything starts then allows, at least for me, to then go, okay, how do I overcome this? How do I overcome the, the insecurity that I would feel as I get older if you're saying the male gaze is real and females love being the object of the gaze, then... They, they are turned on by being the thing that turns someone on. Okay. So if knowing that the male gaze is always um, is built to be looking at the younger, um, more fertile women, knowing that allows me to go, okay, I can't freaking compete with them, right? 
So for me, knowing that that's how the brains work, that that's how people are drawn, that's what, um, as a species, that's how we act. How do we overcome that? What are the things where we don't just act on our impulses? Um, and then the communication between the two of us. And I usually just remember one thing that we kind of do with each other where we're each other's, um, oh, what's the word? Like AA, your sponsor. Um, so being able to build the trust with each other that when someone says, like, I can't validate you, only you can. Um, it was built, we've built 20 years of trust for you to be able to say that so that I know you're not saying it to be mean, you're not trying to say that to put me down, you're actually saying it to try and show me something. Um, and in that moment, actually, I remember saying to myself, this is a moment to actually analyze because I don't just take your word for truth, right? I do think about it, right? And so in that moment when you said that, I was like, okay, am I actually being insecure here? But it all comes to building that foundation right from the beginning of being honest, having the communication, um, and then helping the other person get over their insecurities. Um, I don't really remember though the first time you ever told me that you weren't secure about something. I don't know that I ever just came out and said, oh, this is an insecurity of mine. Mm -hmm. Most of mine revolve around intelligence. So that's always been a huge struggle of mine. Mm -hmm. I mean, even to this day, the thing that if you gave me a button that I could press and was like, hey, you can be, you know, Elon Musk smart, I would like throw my arm out of the socket pressing the button. Um, but just like you realize over investing in your beauty because your beauty is transient, it's gonna go away, you better have something else that you can value yourself for. I realize my intelligence, I can get I can get more effectively intelligent in the sense of I can fill my brain with better beliefs, better values, I can educate myself on a wide variety of topics. But ultimately, like there 50% of who you are is hardwired. So it's like my brain processes data in a certain way and all the physics textbook reading in the world is not gonna make me have the kind of insights that Einstein had. Mm. So I'm at the point where even though I would throw my arm out of the socket to hit the yes be as smart as Elon Musk button, um, I love my life. And I'm, I really believe that I will run out of time before I will run out of potential to turn into skill set. So having something else that you can value is really the key and um, I think that that's incredibly important for anybody to find like what's that next thing. Um, and something that I forgot to say when you were talking before, and I know it's totally derailing this, but I find it so interesting. The correlate for where women cease to have beauty and they move into the grandma phase, men become harmless. And that's the devastating moment for a man because you may still be wealthy as the day is long, and as we all know from, you know, some of the, the shows that you watch, it's like guys can get younger women if they have access to enough resources. But the moment you become harmless, I think, is, is a brutally painful moment for a guy. That, that word is strong. That really hit me. So what are you doing then to overcome uh, well, it's the interesting. approach of being harmless? I think it will hurt me just as when you get to the age where you finally have to cross a threshold of, I'm no longer sexy to the average person. Um, I think when I realized that I have become harmless, that no woman 
need worry about my sexual advances, that no man need worry about my physical prowess, um, that will suck. It's not like high on the list of things that I value myself for, but it's the water that I'm in. I've always been very vital. I've always had a certain physical stature. I'm six feet tall. So it's like, you know, I walk in with some presence. And now I'm sort of at the peak of my, I, you know, have access to a tremendous amount of resources um, and I'm still young-ish. So <laughs> it's like, I'm right in that sweet spot for a guy. Yeah. Um, but the interesting thing is I have no sense of that experience. And I think going into that will only derail from the conversation you want to have around insecurities. But that, that is something that interests me about myself. Choices of things that I chose to value 20 years ago that are now sort of reaping benefits now where I have just this incredible amount of stability around my life because I don't value myself for things like fame. Mm. Yeah, and that's that's one thing that I've reminded myself since we kind of first got together and we've been talking about this is I recognize the danger in valuing my my beauty or my physique or how I look because I know at some stage I'm going to be a bag, big bag of wrinkles and bones. So I have actively worked on being proud of how better I'm getting at art. I'm being proud of how I'm always striving to be a great wife, how I'm always striving to be the best business partner, how I'm always trying to learn and grow and, you know, understand writing. And like, so focusing on all these other things allows me to get my confidence in other places so that as my looks, I just get older and older, um, I'm not attached to that and I'm not feeling insecure about it. And I think that that's, super important especially as I get older um one thing I also want to talk to you about though that has gotten a massive amount of controversy but for some reason me and you like we're so like I don't understand the controversy but I had said in one interview with you actually that insecurities aren't sexy I love that phrase and people lost their shit really so I wasn't being mean to you but you had said you really want big arms and if you were insecure about your arms and you were telling me, hey, I really want this, but you're not doing the actions to get it and you're insecure about it, as your partner that wants to see you succeed, I would be very honest with you. And I'd be like, if you want bigger arms, go to the gym. Don't just sit there and be insecure about it. Like, if I'm down on myself, I've been kicked in the teeth, I've lost my job, whatever. I do not want you to get on your knees and put an arm around me and cry with me. It's not what I want in a partner. I want you to extend a hand to me, pick me up, brush me off, remind me of who I could become. That's what I want in a partner. And that's exactly what you were doing. And it was so powerful. I hold on to that phrase. That phrase is like, it is everything. And this is where I get defiant because this is people fucking themselves up and they're spending a lot of time being arguing and being annoyed with us. And I'm like... And then the next question is going to be, how, how do you guys have such an amazing marriage? It's <laughs> actually true. Let me tell you. You fucking tell the other person what we call giving the keys of the kingdom. Hey, don't get on your knees with me and cry. That's not what I want. Pick me up. Brush me off. Make me feel good. Build me up. Remind me of who I could become, which is exactly what you did. I was whining and whining and whining about how hard it was for me to get bigger muscles. And so it was like, well, 
work out harder. What the fuck? Like, it wasn't like I came home one day and was like, oh, I'm really disappointed, how hard? And it was like, no, come on, baby. Oh my God, your arms look so good. And you doing everything. Like, oh no, flex a muscle for me, squeezing, oh my God, it's so hot. You're doing all of that. And I'm still in a downward spiral about, no, they're not big enough. I mean, there's a whole name for this. It's called bigorexia. Uh, and where mm, guys just can't mm. get big enough to can't know like I, I never hit like those levels trust me but I wanted to get bigger arms and quite frankly what I was really whining about was I wanted it to be easier mm. and after enough time where you're like Jesus I'm doing everything I'm calling you a stud I'm holding on to your arms I'm pointing out how much bigger your arms have already gotten I'm uh, on and on and on in photos in real life and just like doing everything you can to big me up as the Brits would say and it wasn't working. And so finally you realize, okay, well that strategy is not effective. He doesn't want me getting down on my knees, putting an arm around him and crying about it with him. What's left? Pick him back up, brush him off, remind him who he could be by saying, if you want bigger arms, man, you can have them. But you just, there's a reality. You're working out this hard, you're getting this result. If you want a better result, then you have to work out harder. And by the way, I don't need that. So if you want to get out of this spiral and you don't want to put more time in the gym, then just choose not to value bigger arms. Right. It's like- I wasn't saying get over it, Twiggy. Right. <laughs> exactly. So it's like people really, really, really need to go past the fucking tweet level explanation and get into what we call the advanced class. I don't understand people that react with like the annoyance thing. So I do understand in a sense that if I, like for instance, if there was something that I was really insecure about and in that moment, in that very moment, I'm a little fragile. I'd be like, yes. babe, I know I need to hear this, but right now I just need a cuddle. Like I'm very articulate within that moment that the tough love may not work because you automatically go to the tough love. Now in reverse, you wouldn't want me to be sweet. You would only want the tough love. So sometimes you've given me some tough love when I've been a bit insecure and I've said to you in that moment right now I know what you're about to say like but telling me have a growth mindset right in this moment when I'm feeling super vulnerable and insecure just pisses me off so I come sometimes say to you I right now I just need a cuddle right now I just need this and being able to articulate what you're needing in the moment but not then shutting you down right because if they're just like I don't even want to hear the truth just make me feel good. That also doesn't work. So I don't think asking your partner to just be sweet and kind and understanding is the answer to the long-term solution. Um, it, it would be if it worked. And so yes. I'm very glad with what you just said, because I was like, I swear to God, if your punchline is that just don't say what is true. Oh, Jesus. No, no, but no. a thousand percent, you got to be tactful. And you don't just want to tag people where they're insecure. If somebody's insecure and they've been brave enough to tell you, I'm insecure about this, never, ever, 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 ever weaponize that. Don't use that against them. If you can avoid hurting their feelings, go way, way, way out of your way to get the message across without hurting their feelings. I never want to upset you. But in the case where somebody is downward spiraling and you've tried every lifeline, the only kind thing remaining is to give them the truth. And the truth may be, so let's say the day is coming, I promise you, where you're going to come to me crestfallen that you don't feel sexy anymore. And in that moment, I'm not just going to say, get over it. I'm going to say, this is where values comes into play. And if you try to 
hold on to the valuing yourself for looking like a 22 year old and getting those responses, that's gonna be a fucking nightmare of untold proportions. But I'm not gonna bullshit you. Is a fucking 22 year old playboy centerfold like still occupying a neuron in my brain that will fire whenever I see them? That yes, that is attractive, of course. Mm. But you know, I have planted a seed in my own mind of something I value. I have watered that seed every day of my life and given all the nutrients that that little seed needs, the same thing to you so that you know, and that is a shared life matters to me more than anything. So, hey, yes, you're old and wrinkly. Why am I still so into you? Because we've shared this fucking life. And I am so, I've so melded that with my sexual attraction, with everything that it's like, yo, I'm telling you, I will be as excited about you when you're 95 as I am today. But I'm doing the work to make sure that I confuse two ideas in my own mind. And those ideas are the shared life that we have built together that's amazing, the ups, the downs, the like, all of it, man. You see your partner in the worst moments of their life, sick, whining, complaining, heartbroken, just devastated. We have articulated, hey, we're gonna choose to value that because that is a very robust thing. The one thing that is anti-fragile in a relationship is shared experience. The good, the bad, the ugly, all of it. And every day that goes by, that gets stronger, not weaker. Mm. So you shouldn't put yourself in a weak, vulnerable position where you need somebody to echo value back to you. You should not need me to feed you that you are attractive and all that. And at the same time, what kind of person would I be if I don't do everything I can to make you feel good about yourself across every dimension that a human can feel good about themselves? Uh, not to bullshit you, but to find ways to really be excited about that. So very, very early in our relationship, I had this realization. Every time I go to criticize you, instead I'm going to compliment you and I'm not going to fake it. I'm just going to, instead of saying that minor little criticism, hey, think of something that's real that you could compliment her on instead. And all that does is change my focus. Mm -hmm. You see what you focus on. So if I focus on the things that you're doing wrong, which by the way, you do all kinds of things wrong all the time. And if I focused on those, it'd be a nightmare. But hey, by the way, if I focus on all the things that make you the single most extraordinary human being I have ever met in my life, and I'm telling myself that over and over and over, over time, it becomes more true because that's all I can see. I've spent time building this architecture of all the things that you do that are so wonderful that I almost can't see past it to see your flaws because every time a flaw comes up, I'm like, no, 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 I'm not interested in that. So that remains like a little sandcastle. Whereas the things that I really care about, I'm like, but she does this and she does this and I construct this vision of who you are that I just reinforce over and over and over. And because I'm reinforcing it over and over and over, it becomes really robust. So again, you shouldn't put yourself in the weak position of needing me to echo it back. And at the same time, I should be doing everything I can to build you up.